Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right. Uh, so welcome back from your weekend. Hello. Um, it's time for our Monday show. We, all, we call it a scramble because producer Betsy Kaplan and I scramble around uh, trying to figure out what happened over the weekend that you need to know about right away. So in the second segment today, you're going to hear about uh, sort of as a little button on the end of the uh, women's marches this weekend, you're going to hear about just a flood tide of women running for elective office in 2008, an unprecedented number of women running for elective office at virtually every possible level towards the end because we feel like you need something to lift your spirits at a time of all kinds of bad news. We're going to talk to talk about somebody who actually sells rubber ducks. We talk to somebody who sells rubber rubber ducks for a living, uh, and we'll tell you about what the most popular rubber duck in her store is. It'll probably surprise you. Uh, but right now, we're going to talk about something more serious than rubber ducks. We're going to talk about the flu, um, and specifically um, what happens in, in in a situation where there's a government shutdown uh, and the flu. But we're also going to kind of give you kind of a sense of how the flu season is going right now. Uh, but uh, first of all, let me tell you that we have in studio with me. Uh, uh, Dr. Ulysses Wu, Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. We're going to get to him in just a second. Also joining us, she has been with us in the past to talk about similar things, Lena Sun, who reports on health for the Washington Post. Um, Lena, I'm going to start with you. Um, over the weekend, I was sort of trying to follow what the messages from Washington were about what would happen. It looks as though the shutdown may come to an end, but if the shutdown had kept going, what was going to happen vis-a-vis flu tracking and CDC response to the flu? It was kind of confusing. I mean, I heard people in Washington say both things, that there would be some significant consequences and also that they were going to try to avoid significant consequences. So, So what's your read on this? Well, you're exactly right. It was very confusing, um, and that's because um, they were sending out different messages. So initially, um, Friday afternoon, the information was that under the contingency plan um, for these kinds of things, the CDC folks who analyze and aggregate all the data that come in from the states about flu, um, the initial information we had was that they would not keep working because that's what the contingency plan said. Then Friday night, CDC indicated that, well, actually they were going to keep doing anything that would affect, um, you know, immediate response to urgent disease outbreaks. And because this year's flu season is so bad that that would continue as well. But it wasn't exactly clear what kinds of activities would get included. Then just a few minutes ago, I was given a detailed list of the things that CDC would be doing um, that had not been deemed necessary during the last time there was a government shutdown. And, you know, that's what you usually take the template of, a template from. So CDC will continue to figure out what are the, um, what kinds of viruses are likely to be best matched for next year's 
influenza vaccine, because these things take a long time to sort of get into the pipeline, mm-hmm. that CDC's laboratory will continue to do the tests and look for unusual influenza viruses that could become pandemics. Um, and they will continue to take that data from the states and, you know, crunch that data, analyze it, and help people, clinicians like Dr. Wu, um, know in real time how bad it is. And the CDC will also be communicating and reporting to the public about this season and measures they can take to protect themselves. These are all things that were not deemed necessary last time, but because we're in the middle of a bad flu season and because the timing of the shutdown is different, these are things that will continue. So th- that even contravenes something that I saw on Twitter earlier. There actually is a Twitter account, as uh, you, I'm sure, know, called CDC Flu. And it says CDC will not be posting updates, monitoring or responding to comments on this account during the government shutdown. We will be back as soon as possible. Uh, it sounds like maybe there's a, a new version of that, Lena. Well, also, you know, these guidances don't tell you specific. I mean, if they say the CDC will be communicating and reporting to the public about the influenza season, that maybe they will be communicating to the public through other channels, maybe not Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not clear. I do know that in general, the CDC media accounts, the Twitter accounts, all those messages have to be approved in advance. Right. So they might not have the staffing, although, and you know, they have to be approved at higher levels within HHS. So it, it's a long, long chain of approvals, and maybe that that's not going to be in place. But like you said, this may all be moot if um, if it looks like we are going to get a compromise to end a government shutdown. Right. For the moment, though, government is still closed. Um, So, Dr. Ulysses Wu, before we get into the scope and size of the flu epidemic this year, how dependent are you? How much would this affect you? Do you get these? I assume you do get bulletins from the CDC, particularly if the strain changes or if they're seeing something they haven't seen before? Absolutely. Uh, We do rely on uh, the state health department as well as the CDC to sort of give us a gross overview of what is happening in this current influenza season. And uh, the thing I would say, actually, one of the benefits, one of the rare benefits of having a peaking early flu season, it sort of got the uh, it got the the surveillance up and running. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like the coal is in the caboose, and now the train is finally moving. And so there is a little bit of leeway in terms of being on cruise control because everybody is revved up, and we are all prepared for flu season because it has been widespread for quite some time. And when you say peak, do you mean peak like now we're on the downside of the peak, or we're just still at the peak? That is a very good question. And the que- it was thought that we had peaked earlier. And is it peaking and then we've plateaued or peaked that we and we're heading the d- going to the downside, downslide like you've actually uh, uh, alluded to? And it's too early to know. We mm. are certainly seeing uh, high levels of influenza activity, more so on the outpatient visits. But uh, we are certainly seeing uh, an increased amount of hospitalizations compared to probably the 2014, 2015 levels. And so what we're seeing in the press is that, yes, it is at a high level, but it's not at all-time historic levels. And so right now we're peaking, but mm-hmm. I, I guess peak is the wrong word because we don't know if it's still going to go up. But I suspect that it should be leveling off and coming down soon. Um, actually, Lena, let me just turn back to you for a second. Uh, Dr. Wu is saying something interesting, which is, and I, I'm sure it's something that you've been watching too, which is when the, when the season hits early and at least the numbers spike up high pretty early, I, I guess that does kind of get everybody uh, you know, going 60 miles an hour instead of 10 miles an hour in terms of overall epidemiology reaction to it. 
Yes. And, you know, every week the CDC puts out this thing called the flu view, and that's where they take all the data from the states and hospitals and they crunch it. And there are these many maps and charts, but there is one graph that I always look at and it tells you the current flu season and um, the, you know, the number of people who are seeking care for flu-like illnesses and they compare it to previous seasons. And last and the most recent one, people had, as Dr. Wu was saying, people had thought that we had reached the peak, and once it reaches the peak, it'll start to come down, but you'll still have flu for many more weeks. But the most recent data we have that was released on Friday shows mm, that little red line is still going up. Now, like Dr. Wu said, we don't know if that line is going to continue going up for this next week or start to come down. But um, the fact that it has peaked, that it is so serious so early and it has already um, caused the deaths of more children than what officials normally would be ex- expecting at this time of year has 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 gotten everybody paying a lot of attention. You know, uh, Dr. Wu, some of the uh, visuals coming out of this have been rather striking. Before we went on the air, I was saying I was watching uh, television and there was a, a hospital in California where they had a tent set up in the parking lot, essentially extending their triage unit out into the parking lot to cope with the flu, uh, the people coming in with the flu and the the. Dr. Ulysses Wu equivalent out there uh, was saying, ah, we could do anything here that we do in the hospital. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you're in a tent. <laughs> uh, so in terms of bandwidth, in terms of your ability to respond, talk about that. So, I, you know, I, I can't speak for other institutions, though I suspect that they are set up the same way. We, uh, based off of, I mean, there, there is a little bit of benefit to uh, hysteria. And I think a lot of the hysteria started with the Australian data mm-hmm. that is all still preliminary. And everybody's hearing, oh, the influenza vaccine, it's only 10 percent effective. The reality, it was probably around 35 percent effective, which is closer to uh, to the yearly norms. It was only 10 percent effective against the H3N2, uh, which comprised only 58 percent of the Australian viruses, uh, the influenza viruses down there. But based off of that, it shortened, it gave us a it, it allowed a, a heightened sense of awareness. And uh, we were able to prepare from all levels. Um, you know, we're sort of last line in terms of the infectious diseases because we see them after. But from uh, from an institutional standpoint and from an emergency department standpoint uh, and from a pure medicine standpoint, it allowed for early preparation. And so in terms of the bandwidth, I, I, we are definitely prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And I suspect most places are prepared for it. But the question, is that line still going up or is it is it going to finally plateau? That's the big question. You know, Lena, you were, uh, joined our show last April to talk about how the government uh, was not prepared to deal with the next pandemic. Um, that was last April. Uh, how do things look to you now? I'm not, I'm not feeling incredibly heartened by my reporting in the past year. And, um, you know, you sort of, I think one policymaker was telling me about this, like, boy, if we can't, they, they're running out of um, IV uh, bags in hospitals, uh, and um, there are spot shortages of antiviral treatments, uh, such as Tamiflu. And you have to think, like, if we cannot deal with seasonal flu, how are we going to deal with something bigger, like pandemic flu? Um, And uh, then you see just in general government preparedness, what happened with the Hawaii um, false missile alert. Um, These systems are not working very well, and I think the average person is going to realize that. You know, um, 
uh, Dr. Wu, with anything in epidemiology, you have sort of all the medical realities that are really important, and you have people's perceptions that are really important, what people do with the information that they get or the you know, how they process that information. So um, in the spirit of public radio, you know, what do you want people to be thinking about right now? Obviously, washing your hands is a good idea. Getting your flu shots uh, is a good idea. But I think people also hear this stuff and they get kind of scared, too. Mm-hmm. This sounds like worse than usual. What do you say to that? Well, what I say is uh, actually it's a, a lot of people, they tell you that they have had the flu in the past and, you know, they did perfectly fine. And it's the old adage, yeah, you're perfectly fine until you don't do fine. And so most people who got the influenza, most of them, the ones that I've met, and this is purely anecdotal, but it, it is, they say, I will never want the influenza va- uh, virus again. Please give me the shot. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our time is spent trying to give uh, people the right information about the vaccine itself. Uh, we try to dispel with myths and such as you cannot get influenza from the vaccine itself. Uh, the vaccine may be somewhat protective even if you do get influenza. And people forget with these pandemics, people died. Millions of people died. And it, it's a, you take this to a more global vaccine sense, you know, you see the pushback against things like measles, mumps, and rubella, you know, people refusing vaccines for that as well. People are dying from that still around the world. And so you kind of, you, you go with that and you tell them you, the biggest downside is you're going to maybe hurt in your arm for a little bit. Maybe you may feel down and out for a day or two, but it's certainly better than dying from the influenza. Right. Also, psychologically, when I get my flu shot, I tell myself I am now immune from all disease. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that helps. And also, Dr. Wu, um, you know, here I'm really out of my depth and I don't necessarily understand these things. But am I correct in thinking that some of these flu strains that started in animal populations, non-human animal populations, are coming into the human populations? Uh, we haven't seen a lot of it yet. There is certainly things like avian influenza, swine flu. So what happens is that the, uh, the influenza changes or it mutates and it adapts uh, to the point where it does cross-populate against uh, different species. And that's when we see uh, things like the swine flu or avian influenza. And that's particularly dangerous because it is not us as a human species that have been exposed to this in the past. And so a lot of this has to do with antibody protection and and our basic immune system. And so when a new virus is introduced and you look at all the horror movies like Outbreak and Virus and World War Z or whatever it may be, when we don't have these protective uh, systems in place, yes, there is the chance that that may happen. My son and I actually watched Contagion on the plane going yep. to San Francisco. Dumbest thing I ever did in my <laughs> life. Um, so Just think of all the germs you picked up on the uh, plane. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly. Well, so Lena, you know, as you say, um, it's it's not just one disease, uh, and it's not even just the CDC in terms of government functions that uh, affect our health and our safety, whether it's the FDI or the FDA or the NIH. So let's imagine. God forbid, but let's imagine that, you know, I don't know, three or four senators get in a big spat this afternoon and this government shutdown did roll on for a few weeks. What do you know about contingency planning there if we had a three week government shutdown? What would happen to some of these vital agencies? Well, in some of the, as, and, you know, people think that this is um, uh, directed by common sense and it's not. It's all directed by how an employee is funded. So, for example, if you were um, a scientist at NIH and you were um, running an experiment with mice on something and those mice were owned by NIH, that's government property, that mouse experiment would keep going. But at the same time, um, the folks at the CDC who track foodborne 
um, diseases, foodborne outbreaks, salmonella, listeria, those guys wouldn't keep working because mm. their salaries are funded by, you know, the, the regular salary pro- uh, government mm. process. And they're not, you know, they're, they, the people who monitor disease outbreaks at the CDC don't keep working, but they are allowed to respond to a disease outbreak, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, Folks at the NIH, for example, would not be able to enroll new patients in clinical trials for um, life-threatening illnesses. Those, those, um, those folks who work at the NIH in that part are often dealing with people on their very you know, last-ditch um, last effort. Um, uh, and at the FDA, a lot of the food and safety programs would not continue, but the agriculture department folks who do the food inspections, meat and poultry, um, that would continue. So who is determined to be essential and non-essential and who would get furloughed and who would not get furloughed? It does not make sense. It's all based on how their salary is funded. So it's just totally nuts. Right. Well, departures from common sense are to be expected, uh, particularly in the era that we live in. So um, we're going to wrap this uh, segment up here. First of all, I want to thank Alina Sun, uh, reports on health for the Washington Post, and is uh, certainly our uh, one of our go-to people about stuff like this. And so is Dr. Ulysses Wu, a chief of infectious disease at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Any last piece? Of, well, wash your hands, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So everybody knows that I don't shake hands. I right. would say even stay away from shaking hands because they right. can't live on surfaces. Wash your hands. It's not too late to get the influenza vaccine. Uh, and it's certainly still available out there. And the last point I'd actually bring up, you know, going back to the train analogy, uh, the biggest worry with the government shutdown would be the train's moving. Yeah. But if there's a turn or twist in the track, are we going to be able to respond? And that's the big th- take-home point from the government shutdown. That's a really great, great point. And a great point about how it's not too late to get your flu shot, son of a certain radio show host. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something else, about women in politics. Some really exciting things going on there. What I've got, babe. I got flu, babe. I got flu, babe. I got flu. As most of you know, over the weekend, there were women's marches all over this country, 10,000 people uh, on the lawn of the Capitol in Hartford. That's a lot of people for Hartford. Behind that is another phenomenon that maybe is less well documented, except by Rebecca Traister, writer at large for New York Magazine and the author of All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. She wrote this weekend about the record number of first-time female candidates running for office in 2018. Uh, You can find this in today's issue of New York Magazine. You can find it online as well. First of all, Rebecca Traister, welcome to our show. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So the magnitude of this is, I mean, it is a tsunami. That's not an overstatement. This is, the numbers are pretty impressive, probably particularly in the U.S. House of Representatives. Tell us about those numbers. Right. There are th- at the moment, now, all the, the ballots aren't final yet, so these numbers are changing, and in fact, they're likely to grow before sort of all the ballots get finalized in all these kinds of races. Um, but at the moment, there are 390 women who are planning to run for the House of Representatives, and that's a figure that is higher than at any other time in U.S. history. It's just a massive jump in women who are going to run for the House, but those jumps are also true. There are 49 women likely to be running for the Senate, 
um, that's 60, that, that number is 68% higher than the number who'd announced at the same point back in 2014. 79 women are likely to be running as governors. There are all kinds of record numbers of women, and that doesn't include the sort of the state legislative races and the school board races and the city council races and the mayoral races in which women are signing up to run in record numbers as well. And what that does, people poo-poo that a little bit, but they absolutely shouldn't because what that does is fill a political pipeline. And one of the problems in terms of electing women to offices at every level is that there hasn't been a pipeline that's been filled with women candidates. And and so many of these women are women of color who, of course, are most grievously underrepresented in our purportedly representative government. Right. And and so I don't think anybody would poo-poo the local level stuff. I think it's pretty important and we're seeing it here in Connecticut as well. In some ways, you make an interesting case that the Senate is the, the place, the U.S. Senate where is the place where stasis has been kind of the rule of the day, that a celebrated earlier small wave of women elected to the U.S. Senate was kind of, you know, almost the end of that story until now. Well, it wasn't exactly the end. It was the big, there are the moments that, that numbers are, numbers edge up a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Just a little by little by little, they go down, they go up, they edge up a little bit. And then there are moments where there's a big jump. And the, for many years in politics, was called the year of the woman. It was 1992. And it was a year that, like this one, there was tremendous anger about a lot of things, including the perceived ill treatment of a particular woman, Anita Hill. The connections between that that period and this one, are there are many connections. It was a, a massively important moment, and it sort of helped to hammer the notion of sexual harassment, not just as a kind of individual behavior, but as a behavior that does material damage to women as a class in workplaces. It helped to help us understand that that was a thing and put it in the American lexicon. But the Senate Judiciary Committee, in front of whom Anita Hill testified, was all male and all white. And she was treated horribly. She was shamed, made fun of, mocked, not defended, including by Democrats, including Mm -hmm. by Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden, who ran the committee. And lots of American women watched this all male, all white Senate Judiciary Committee and became enraged. And a lot of women signed up to run for office the following year, 1992. There also happened to be a lot of seats open that year. And so women ran in unprecedented numbers, and they won in unprecedented numbers. In the Senate, it was four women. And imagine that. That was unprecedented at the time. Right. Now, two of them are still in office, Diane Feinstein and Patty Murray. The, a third, Barbara Boxer, retired last year. Her seat is now filled by Kamala Harris. The fourth woman who won was Carol Mosley Brown, who was the first black woman ever elected to the United States Senate. And she remained the only black woman elected to the Senate until just this past November when Kamala Harris won Barbara Boxer's seat. So that year, was a, it feels small in retrospect. There are now 22 women in the U.S. Senate. But that was the last time there was a kind of wave like this that was widely recognized. There were also, I believe, 23 women won House seats, which was a record at that time. So if we're going to draw a line from 92 to now and and use uh, Anita Hill as kind of a symbolic flashpoint at, at that moment, what's the flashpoint now? Is it a single one the way Hill was, or is well, it a constellation? Yes. I think, in part, if there's another... Many, many women talk about how they were motivated to... to run in the wake of Donald Trump's defeat of Hillary Clinton in the presidential election in 2016. Now, for some of them, that's because of Trump himself and their anger that this alleged abuser, that this racist, openly racist, openly sexist, openly, they, they feel, incompetent 
man was elected and and their anger at what he's doing to the country. For a lot of them, it is also the fact that Hillary Clinton lost and, and that this worked as a metaphor for women's experiences in workplaces all the time, that the competent, qualified woman could lose the job to the incompetent, unqualified man who's been reported to HR for sexual harassment and nonetheless gets the promotion, nonetheless wins the bigger job over the woman. And that is such a resonant experience. And now I think it is that those impulses are being amplified by the renewed discussion of sexual harassment and its prevalence and the damage that it does to women. So a number of women who are running talk about their own experiences of harassment or of assault. A number of women talk about the kind of power abuses that have been enacted by men, specifically white men who've had the disproportionate share of political power as well as economic power, social power, sexual power throughout this country's history. Um, There is this conversation. So many men at the top um, are now being uh, looked at more critically, their behaviors and the the allegations that they have abused their power in one way or another are being taken seriously, really for the first time in my memory on a national, you know, broad level. And politics is one of the only professions where the idea of replacement of those guys is actually a possibility. So many professions, you know, you talk about the news business, media, law, medicine, all these places where um, it's very difficult to go back for women who may have exiled themselves from those professions or been chased out, the idea of going back in and just getting a job in those professions is is implausible in many cases. But politics is a place where you can run for office, you know, even if you have been a stay-at-home parent for the past 10 years, if you are a preschool teacher, if you're a veterinarian, if you are a a lobster woman, there's a a former lobster woman in Maine who's running for office, Um, if you are a sanitation worker, you can run for office. There are challenges, there are structural impediments that will make it more difficult to fundraise, to get networks. Racial and gendered identity bias is a very real factor in politics, but you can run. And one of the things about the special elections over the past year in Virginia, in New Jersey, in Georgia's 6th district in the fall, is that you saw unlikely first-time candidates, many of them women and women of color, winning improbable races. So there is a possibility in politics that you can change the profession swiftly. The, I, I mean, I think that's a great point, and you, you make that point very ably uh, in your article. Um, so as we drop down from there, Rebecca Traster, from, you looked at a lot of these races uh, in detail. As we drop down from the symbolism of the Trump victory and, and, and uh, the uh, concerns that kind of gather under the umbrella of the Me, Me Too movement, um, are there specific policy-oriented things that, that run through all this? I mean, races are all very different. Politics tend to be very local. Can you sort of pinpoint maybe two, three key policy issues that are driving this, this movement? That's interesting. Most broadly, it's fair to say that the majority of the women who are running are Democrats. Now, what that means can vary tremendously, though the other thing that I have noted is that many of the Democrats who are running, and there's a sort of uptick in the number of Democrats who are challenging incumbent Democrats from the left. I think there is a leftward tilt to these candidates. But 
there are so many hundreds of people running for so many hundreds of offices sure. um, that it's impossible to sort of say, oh, yes, everyone's united around single-payer health care, for example. But I will say that issues of immigration and health care were at the forefront. Some of the social and economic safety nets that, that women are seeing starved by the current administration, I think, are very much at the forefront. I heard health care mentioned over and over and over again. Also, issues around education, making early education more available to more people, college education is more available to more people. You simply cannot characterize this number of women and where they stand. But I will say that there is a progressive echo in lots of the women that I spoke to. Those kinds of policies, which really just you know, 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago, would have been considered extremely left progressive policies are now things that a lot of new candidates are talking about as things that simply make sense. We're talking to Rebecca Traster right now, a writer at large for New York Magazine. She has a terrific and very detailed article about this wave, and it is a big wave, of women running for public office at the level of Congress, at the level of governor's houses, and at the level of state politics. So uh, let me ask you this. One criticism I heard, and I heard it from young people, uh, Mm -hmm. probably more than anybody else, during the 2016 campaign, during the primary segment of that, is Uh, and I heard it, I think, from both young men and young women, was, I understand exactly what Bernie Sanders stands for. I'm less clear about Hillary Clinton. I'm hearing more about the historic nature of her candidacy uh, and less about what her actual uh, policy goals are. Uh, Those seem more fungible. Um, So is that something that, I don't know, as you're talking to women candidates, it seems as though, once again, we are absolutely at a historic moment here, as you've detailed. But it seems as though there's another challenge, right, which is making intelligible specifically what you stand for. Yes, although it's interesting, the dynamics between... um the way that Bernie Sanders' message was understood and Hillary Clinton's message was understood are not unrelated to to gender. Um, Bernie was able to be forceful in a way, and he was very good at it. Bernie was a terrific candidate um, and one whose politics I admire very much. He And he was excellent at running for office, but he had certain freedoms. He could be angry. He could be angry at the establishment. He could shake his fist, which he did to great effect. Bernie could be very forceful in his delivery, and he could deliver short pithy promises, which are terrific, free college, single-payer health care. And he was both good at it. It spoke to his own natural talents, and they were real. And, and, and by many measures, he was a far more talented campaigner and speaker than Hillary Clinton. But there were limits on the way that Hillary Clinton could express herself. She could not be angry in the same way. And women have for a long time been trained to not overpromise because people think that they don't know what they're talking about or they can't carry through. We distrust women. Look at how instantly we distrust Hillary Clinton. And there are a million people who can then pop up or call in and say, oh, there are a million reasons to distrust Hillary Clinton. Sure, there are a million reasons to distrust any politician. In fact, Hillary Clinton was extremely specific to the point of, it, I think, hurting her delivery. She had very detailed policy plans, down to every penny and every number. Um, you may have liked them. You may have not liked them. You may have felt that they were too incremental. You know, that is true. But where she erred was in being too specific, talking in complex sentences, too many sentences, and not just delivering those one-two punches of this is what I'm going to give you is free college. So that complicates to a degree the question of did she have specific things she was 
planning to do versus Bernie's specific things, because Bernie's ideas were very clear, but the specifics of how they were going to happen and be implemented, actually, once you dug deep, were less clear. But that's a real communicative question, and that's something that female candidates need to think about. Hillary Clinton comes from an era in which being a woman candidate was truly being an anomaly. And women were coached differently. I write in the piece, and I've written a lot about Hillary Clinton over the years, um, the way that she was coached to run for president for the first time was basically to cross-dress as a man. Mark Penn, her first presidential campaign advisor in 2008, wrote her a series of memos in which he said that America was not ready for a first mama, that basically she needed to be a man to be a first papa who was a woman. Candidates today are not advised in the same way. And so much of how Hillary Clinton presented herself and expressed herself is shaped by the era in which she was an anomaly and told to shift how she acted, how she delivered, how she how she spoke, how closely she spoke into the microphone. And she still wasn't immune from that kind of stuff. Every time she spoke too loudly into a mi- microphone, people said, she's yelling at us, she's yelling at us. Meanwhile, she's running against two guys who became popular by yelling, Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump. So challenges still face this new generation of women, but there are very different approaches being taken. And one of the things I write about in the article is that these this new generation, more diverse generation, um, more numerous, you know, coming in at different ages, different status, different races, different religions, ethnicities, different communities are being told now more than ever, just run as you are. Run as yourself. Don't try to fit into a mold. Don't, you don't have to wear a boxy pantsuit and cut your hair into a helmet and try to adopt the rhetorical stylings of male candidates. We need to adjust our eyes to different kinds of leadership, including female leadership. Some of them are going to be type A policy wonks, and some of them are going to be big moving promisers, you know, like I'm, I see a, a future and they're going to lift us up with poetry. And some of them are not going to be good on the stump, and some of them are. There's, you know, they're going to be good candidates and bad candidates. So I don't think there's one thing that we could say. And some of them, because they're running for local office, their issues are different. You know, Shay White, who's a woman who's running for the Oklahoma legislature, talked to me a lot. She's a young 26-year-old African-American woman, first-time candidate, running in part because she wants to fix the tax policy in Oklahoma that has removed taxes from oil companies and the, and the state's schools and health programs are being starved. And she wants to address that tax issue in Oklahoma very specifically. So her interests are going to be very different from somebody who's running, you know, for a Senate seat in California. Uh, Rebecca Traster, uh, it's going to be a long road from here to November through primaries and, and through the general election itself. One thing we know is it's going to be a very interesting year and that there will be changes. Uh, you lay out some of those changes, potential changes, in a very interesting way in your New York Magazine article. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show was produced by women, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Actually, that's the way it pretty much is every Monday. Amanda Fish is a woman and a fish. She's a fish and a woman. The part of Bill Curry was played by a more qualified woman. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about why research on medical marijuana is so hard to do. And now...
Back to Colin. All right. So I have some very exciting visitors uh, in my studio. Uh, two of them are human and the rest of them are rubber. Uh, and I'll explain that to you in just a second. I quickly want to say that. Uh, so on First of all, the Oscar nominations come out tomorrow morning. On Friday, uh, part of our conversation on the nose will be about the uh, movie The Phantom Thread, which is theoretically, anyway, according to him, the last Daniel Day-Lewis movie ever. Um, But I also want to recommend, I don't usually do this on Mondays, but I want to, because there's sort of a small window here, uh, a movie that I saw over the weekend. It's a 2017 movie. Uh, It's... um, directed by Todd Haynes. Uh, it's called Wonderstruck, and it is playing at Trinity the next three nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, and at the Trinity Cine Studio. And first of all, I think it's kind of an underrated movie. Uh, it's um, It takes place in 1927 and 1972. It toggles back and forth between those two things. The 1927 uh, parts are all in black and white. Uh, it involves uh, characters who are deaf, two characters who are deaf, which is something that's very interesting to us for reasons I think most of you know. Uh, And it's also just a beautiful looking, very interesting and very intricate movie. Not every critic has loved it. I think Manola Dargis from The New York Times really loved it. And I don't know. If you're going to see it, go see it at Trinity. It's going to look great on a big screen. Todd Haynes is a real interesting uh, visual director. All right. So enough about that. Uh, Now joining me in studio are uh, Sherry and Larry Athe. Uh, They are co-owners with also their daughter, Lauren, I believe, of Truffle Shots and more relevantly, Essex Essex Ducks. Uh, uh, I read about them, I think it was a Christopher Hoffman piece in the New Haven Biz, uh, but also Sarah Page Cridge of the New Haven Register. I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. Uh, I've written about her as well. Uh, And so she she, uh, well, both of them now are here in the studio with a whole bunch of rubber ducks and one duck that is not really, truly, entirely just rubber. So first of all, welcome to our show. Welcome to our studios. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Sherry, first of all, um, how many, well, actually, let's sort of, where did this all start? How did you wind up selling rubber ducks for a living? Well, last May, I bought a rubber duck on Impulse, um, kind of as a distraction from all that was going on politically mm. and, you know, all the all the bad news and the tension among people. And took it to my office to take home that night. And after three hours of looking at it on my desk, I thought, you know, if this brightens my day, imagine what a whole store full could do for people. And so I announced to my husband and daughter, we're going to open a duck store. Yeah. Well, first of all, I should say one reason you're here is I really like rubber ducks, and I have a bunch of them. Uh, you are enviously regarding my Titanic duck, yes, which I is am. dressed up in a <laughs> Titanic uh, captain's uh, jacket and hat. Uh, but uh, most of my other ducks are in the possession of Betsy Kaplan because they invaded her desk while she was on vacation <laughs> and she just sort of kept them. Um, but so I think rubber ducks also do lift our spirits. I had no idea how many different sort of kinds or themes or I don't know. You can't really call them outfits exactly because it's all just one piece of rubber there. But you've got like 500 kinds We have about 500 different uh, styles of this size rubber duck. We have three or 400 other uh, tiny ducks and then yeah. some large ducks as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm looking at uh, a couple of different kinds of doctor ducks. and um, Well, I, Larry, I, the Shakespeare duck was kind of a quest for you guys, right? Well, it's quite fun, yes. We are uh, Shakespeare fans and enjoy going to the Shakespeare that's put on uh, by numerous uh, companies throughout the state in the summertime. And so when we saw this one, we thought, well, we've just got to have it. Um, we were in Stratford earlier this year, uh, well, last year, last fall, for the uh, uh, and. Got a Shakespeare duck there because we left ours at home and took some pictures of him showing us around town. 
and uh, <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, the, the, the Shakespeare Duck is great. He's here. By the way, uh, Kion Wolf has already been here taking lots of pictures. So when you go to wnpr.org/colin, um, uh, you can find this show and you can see lots of pictures uh, of these rubber ducks. So, well, let's start at the high end. I mean, most of these rubber ducks are you know within reach of of any of us. Um, but there's one here that's bejeweled and glittering. Here, Sherry, tell me about this one. Well, we actually had three in a line of collectibles, um, all limited edition ducks. Uh, this is the middle in that range. This particular duck is uh, studded in Swarovski crystals, and it retails for $215. We had another that we bought that we thought might be fun for people just to come and see in the store, but actually had a customer buy it just a couple months after the store opened. That one retailed for $925. But so somebody spent over nine hundred dollars uh, on a duck and bought a lot of other on a duck, ducks. and yeah. then they bought four hundred dollars worth of other ducks. <laughs> <laughs> so one sale, thirteen hundred dollars. But it's not like that all the time. You just need to get that person to come back once a week. Yes, you'll be fine. Yes. So, um, I mean, I'm looking at a John Lennon duck. Yes. With a give uh, geese a chance T-shirt on. This is from our celebrity duck line, which is sort of parodies on various celebrities. Um, we do have a Trump duck in this line, as well as a lot of other rock stars. Um, we have Willie Nelson, Bob Marley, Harry Ponder, um, the Duckinator, just a, a lot of different <laughs> material bird. <laughs> material bird. Yeah. So and so the, those come in. This is a, what, a specific brand yes. of ducks. They're different different rubber ducks brands. Those yes. come in kind of a a collector box, you know, where you're kind of tempted not to take it out of the box and uh, play with it. But um, but there there are a number. So the the Trump duck is like your number one seller right now, Yes, right? by yeah. far. One in nine rubber ducks in this size of the character ducks is a Trump sale, which surprised us. Well, you, but you don't really know, right? I mean, some people who are Trump voters want a Trump duck for obvious reasons, to play with in the bathtub or whatever they, they're going to do with it. But people like me, I might be buying it so I can serve it against the wall with a tennis racket or something. Exactly. And so we get people from both sides. And I think that's why he's a top seller is because from, you know, people, people on both sides of um, politics will buy this duck for different reasons. But um, yeah, that it was kind of a surprise. When we first saw him, I actually had called the president of a company to order all the ducks. And when I finished with my order, he said, you've ordered everything except the Trump duck. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's because I'm, I'm concerned about the discord that it might cause in the duck store, which we sort of think of as a happy place, a peaceful place mm-hmm. where people can kind of have a break from all of this. And he said, no, you have to buy this. It's going to be your top seller. And he was right. Within a couple of weeks of opening the store, we sold out of this line and another that we get from the UK. And when I called back to reorder them, they were out of stock. So I um, asked for another 500 from the UK. And um, yeah, we've been going through them. So sitting inside the Trump duck for a second, do you have a working hypothesis about why people want these? Why people? I mean, you know, for example, you, you've got a reporter duck and a, a duck that's sort of a globe, I guess, that turned, turned mm-hmm. itself into a, a duck. And you've got a couple of different kinds of doctor ducks. I don't know. I mean, I could buy figurines of a lot of things that w- wouldn't be ducks. Right. What is it about ducks? Well, they're, they're one. They're very affordable, but they're happy. I mean, they're yellow yeah. for the most part, so it sort of lifts people. <laughs> um, some of it might be that it sort of takes them back to a, a time when things were, you know, more innocent and, and fun. Um, rubber ducks have come a long way, as, as we've talked about, over 500 different styles just in our store. But, um, you know, people can still play with them or a lot of people collect them. And one of the other surprises that we've had is how many men collect rubber ducks. 
we've actually had more men than women tell us that they collect rubber ducks or more people buying them for men that collect them. And it's just it's just so interesting. I think maybe one of the reasons for that is we have a lot of ducks that represent various sports mm-hmm. and um, occupations. And so, you know, they speak to people in different ways. Rubber ducks are very manly. I can't imagine why you would be surprised about uh, <laughs> this. Uh, I was very excited that you had never seen the particular rubber duck that I confronted you oh, with as you walked in Oh, it's a fine duck. Yeah. So it is. I bought it at the Titanic Museum in Belfast. Uh, I doubt you get it anywhere else. Larry, you were saying that some museums kind of order order a rubber duck to be in their gift shop, and it probably doesn't sure. exist anywhere they'll else, have, right? They'll, they'll, have, they'll get a custom duck that speaks to exactly what they are or what they're want people as a souvenir to right. remind them. And that's one of the things about the the other ducks in general. People come in and they'll buy a duck for someone because it's their soccer coach or you have coaches giving soccer little soccer ducks to kids on the team and things like that. It's just a it creates a little happiness and spreads a little mirth around. Uh, people have fun with it. People come in the store and they're just surrounded in a kind of a small room by over a thousand rubber ducks and you can't help but <laughs> smile. Even if you're Laughing at first, it, everybody smiles by the time they uh, are there for a minute or two. I'm smiling and laughing, and I'm not even there. <laughs> so, yeah, now it occurs to me, I mean, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. Does, does the NFL, do they do a duck for every team? Do you know? We I'm don't. going to look into that yeah. because I think that would be sort of a fun line to have. Well, yeah, I mean, in your store, you'd probably mainly want to have, like, Patriots and Giants and stuff like that. Exactly, but I think it'd be fun to have a line of all of the ducks in the league. Yeah. And so are there other ducks? Like, was the Shakespeare duck hard to get or? or... He comes from a company in the U.K. Mm -hmm. Um, They have several ducks, many, many of them focusing on characters from from the area. Um, but no, he w- he wasn't hard to find. But I thought he was cute. And again, like Larry said, we're Shakespeare fans. He has a little um, scroll there that says... Uh, to quack to or, quack not, to or quack. not to quack <laughs> on it. So it's it's fun. It's all it's all just good fun. It's just a happy place. A we we also have a, a Henry VIII and an Anne Boleyn. Oh, really? A, a mm-hmm. Winston, yeah, Anne's head is firmly attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Florence Nightingale. We have, we have knights, artists. Elizabeth um, I. Yeah. Frida Kahlo and Salvador Dali and got the Picasso. mono mono brow, brow on the on the Frida Kahlo <laughs> exactly. duck. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. and Salvador with his clocks. And his mustache. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to drive down to Essex. I want some of these ducks. That, it's I, worth it cost, a drive. It costs it really me a lot is. of money to go in your store. I think <laughs> I really want uh, a whole bunch of the ducks that you've just described. So, and and uh, you said right now you're dependent on somebody else making a duck, but you guys are thinking about maybe ordering at least maybe like Essex themed ducks yes, or something. We like have that. talked to two companies, um, both in Europe, about uh, creating ducks for us. We'll design our own ducks to have. Uh, in addition to the lines that we already carry. Yeah. And I think some of the fun of this, I mean, first of all, the Internet makes everything possible, but also kind of wrecks everything Mm -hmm. in in the sense that you can now, it makes you possible, right? Because you can just do a Google search on rubber ducks and find out who makes them and what ducks they make and order them that way. It took a little little bit of digging, but we, we got to the bottom of it. But it's fun. We try to make our website a fun place to be, but there is nothing that compares with the experience of just being surrounded by thousands of rubber ducks. So it is a very experiential um, thing to come to the store. Right. And and I I mean, I always think, I was saying to you before we, we got started here, I think when you travel, it's always good to have sort of a little 
grail, a grail at or something, uh, like a little thing that you're looking for. And so like now you've sort of inspired me. I mean, I already do have one travel themed rubber duck. But it, if in fact they do just sort of exist in little museums and stuff like that as uh, in little gift shops, as Larry says, because you know, whenever you're traveling, you're always thinking, well, what, what's my goal for today? What do I want to do? You know, and what if one thing were to be just to keep my eye peeled for a rubber, a rubber duck that you guys don't have, that would be very exciting to do. So you guys are also going to incorporate this into the life of the world around you. You're, have you already done this, having duck hunts? In, in, yes, yeah. yes. We have um, an idea that we're going to share with the retailers in Essex for a duck hunt where um, visitors can come and, and hunt for ducks in the stores and, and bring people to Essex and see what other fun things are there. And um, we want to make uh, our celebration of National Rubber Duck Day an annual thing. That was last Saturday. It was last Saturday. <laughs> yes, oh. it was on the 13th. I didn't which know. coincides with Rubber Ducky's um, birthday, Rubber Ducky from Sesame Street. Oh, from Street. Sesame Street, Bernie's, yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize it actually Ernie, had a birthday. Ernie's duck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the sort of peculiar ironies here is though, although you sell many, many, many different kinds of ducks, do I have it right that you actually still only own one rubber duck? I still only own the original duck. Um, I'm kind of a minimalist myself. I don't collect anything, but that little duck makes me happy to see every morning. And um, then the rest of it, my my daughter, who also works with us, says it's a good thing that we have a duck store because if we didn't, I would have to own every one of these ducks. Right. And every time we get another delivery, we just are – amazed at the detail on these and the artistry uh, just I mean you can see you know strands of hair or uh, cable knits in sweaters or treads on tires of like this little mechanic here it's just it's just so detailed and you can just look at them for so long and people come in and first they shake their head you know oh it's all oh it's just all ducks but after a minute of looking around they just realize that they could spend a lot of time there looking at the details. Yeah, and so I assume that that's all done, that's probably all done on computers too, the design of these ducks and stuff like that. I don't know much yeah. about duck design. All right. well, <laughs> eventually you will. So, will. so you've got a couple of different uh, Trump-style ducks. Uh, is, is that sort of the limit of those? I mean, if it's such a hot seller, even nationally, if the... We uh, have tried to order the celebrity duck, Trump. He will be in the country the first weekend, February. Yeah. Um, he's trying to get through customs right now, which is... <laughs> he's got a visa. <laughs> we thought that was interesting. That's really true, though, right? He's right it's he's, really true. That's yeah. where he is right now. And and so we're waiting for him, but we have plenty of the other ducks. And he, you know, here is flashing his signature hand gestures. Right. We have the little air pinch, the little victory sign. So he's he's adorable. All right. So uh, that's going to uh, end it for our show today. But this is uh, really fun uh, talking to Larry and Sherry Athe. Uh, and you can go to their store in Essex and behold all these rubber ducks and be cheered up quite a big quite a bit about them. Uh, and Betsy Kaplan is contesting the question of who actually owns the rubber ducks that are. No, you have them. You've captured them. They're, they are. But they're prisoners. They're they're not really yours. Ducks are free. They, they, ducks are ultimately free. All right. Thanks to everybody uh, who uh, helped out with today's show and those of you who uh, listened and put up with me. And we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to rerun our medical marijuana show. We're having a staff retreat tomorrow, which is pretty exciting. I'm getting wordy. Where's that ducky, man? I need him here right now. Squeeze him. You heard me? Squeak. Rubber ducky. I'm awfully fond of you.